Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I didn't have a good relationship with her. I knew of her. Maybe just girl's intuition. It was just she was one of those girls that, you know, you told your brother and your friends she's not good. Stay away from her. She just had one of those manipulative attitudes and the way she treated guys was like they were expendable. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And I would really like to make note that Billy Jensen is wearing shorts right now. And I just find that very shocking. Mostly because the glare is coming through the screen because of the color of the legs are quite... Uh, I just went on a three-mile hike, too. So Maybe you should do it at the peak of the day and not yes. at night. <laughs> well, I just don't... Alexis, have you seen Billy in shorts often because i don't think i've ever seen this man in a pair of shorts before i don't even know what type of a short you would wear uh, i've seen him in shorts another time but often would be a stretch <laughs> one other time one other time at like a company pool party but that's probably it <laughs> billy what kind of shorts does one gangly body like yours wear do you wear a short short i wear jams remember What's jams jam? remember what those were? <laughs> that's something very gen xy but no i don't wear shorts i wear like the what are they the seven inch or, or the ten inch shorts or seven eight inch whatever just stuff you would buy from crew. seven to eight to ten inch <laughs> yeah 12, I know, whatever i mean which is a big difference that in, is a big difference in men's shorting inseams yes but i um you know i like a, a short just because it's uh it's quite summer. hot in los angeles it's summer but uh, I would never actually go out in a pair of shorts at night. Certainly, that's not my thing. Mm, good to know. Mm-hmm. I was just—it was—it really threw me. I saw <laughs> your knee come up, and it was a, a it was an attack. Nude it was an attack. leg. Yes, yeah, it was an it's a nude leg attack. <laughs> and HR will be notified. HR will be notified. Um, okay. Well, before we get into the day, I just wanted to do a little quick reminder that if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, you have a first degree situation that has happened to somebody that you know, please write us because we love hearing your stories and no story is too small or too unheard of or too minuscule. Um, and we like telling those stories that often get underreported. So please send in your stories to hello at the first degree podcast.com. That's right. That's right, baby. What day is it today, Billy? All right. Well, today is September 22nd. And we have a plethora of days. Mm-hmm. It's Dear Diary Day. Oh, great. For people who. Uh, Did you guys keep diaries? My whole life, I've never been able to consistently journal. I have like yeah. 10 that are started. Oh, yeah. And then I have a few that I kept up. Like every time I was sad or something, I would journal. But I've never been able to daily journal because the ADD is too, too real for me. Like I cannot sit down with my thoughts. That's how I am. Yeah. I have like probably 50 because my parents keep everything. So I have like 50 journals, diaries that have two entries in them. And I'm like, I'm going to really keep with it this time. Dear diary. And then it was like nothing. Yeah. Well, one of the things like, I mean, Lex just hit the nail on the head. A lot of times you start journaling when you're down. When you're sad, yeah. Then when you get better, you're not journaling. And um, But it's the happy stuff we should be journaling because when we look back at our lives in, you know, 20, 30 years, it's those sort of visceral, joyful moments that we're not going to have documentation of. So everybody should try to journal more. And also it's really good for your brain. I got to take my own advice though. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. We'll we'll see that going for two days. (laughs) It's also, this one's for you guys, National Girls' Night In Day. 
Oh, Ooh. our favorite type of day. Me yeah. and Jack love a girl's night in with a nice cheesecake factory meal, and a scary <laughs> documentary. It's our favorite thing to do. I do love a girl. I mean, you know what? I feel like recording our podcast is a girl's night in, including Billy and then Jared too. Girl, all 100%. the gals together. All the, all the gals together. Yeah. Yeah. Wearing, wearing our shorts. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, it's a lot of stuff. It, it's National Hobbit Day, National Ice Cream Cone Day. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, National White Chocolate Day, which is an abomination. Um, useless um, chocolate. Use, you know what? That actually might, Billy, write this down for an on the stand for you. This is a really good on the stand topic because okay. white chocolate is very controversial. So remember this. Okay. All right. That's a good, good call. All right. Good and call. That's, and that's pretty much it. All right. Well, that's a, that's a lot of good days. Sure but, is. But, uh, you know, I think that that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Love. We've all felt it. We all need it. But how far would you go for it? How far would you go to keep it? And what would you do to prove your love to the focus of your affection? And if you did end up paying the ultimate price for love, do you think it would be worth it? But more importantly, would that loyalty be reciprocated? These are all questions we'll be exploring in today's episode. And today's case takes us back to June 20th of 2008. And for those of you that are into astrology, this day was a Friday and under the sign of Gemini. The song topping the charts was Lollipop by Lil Wayne, and movies and theaters were The Incredible Hulk, Get Smart, and Kung Fu Panda. And the setting for today's case is Apache Junction, Arizona, which began as an Old West mining camp. It has a colorful history involving Native American cultures, Spanish conquistadors, and superstitions regarding the Lost Dutchman's gold mine. The city was named after the junction of the Apache Trail. Our first degree, Avery, was born, raised, and still calls Apache Junction home. Well, to locals, like in other towns nearby, they like to call Apache Junction dysfunction junctions because they claimed that that's where all the misfits lived. I love our town, and I just thought it was funny that they called it dysfunction junction, but... It's one of those towns, like, I think you would think in movies where everybody's trying to get out of it, but there's not really a reason why. Avery attended Apache Junction High School and was active in her local church, which was called the Desert Bible Chapel, where she was involved in her youth group. And it was there that she formed many of her friendships. And one of these friends was named Randall Mercier. I lived up at the base of the mountains, actually considered the outskirts of Apache Junction. And Randall actually lived on the way into town from my house. And so he went to all the same schools I did. We went to the same middle school and high school. But I met him in eighth grade when he came to a youth group I actually went to and I recognized him from school. He turned out being one of our regular fixtures of our youth group and our church. And that's where I really got to know him well. And Randall had a lot of hobbies, and he was really into activities that revolved around skating and BMX culture. And based on his Facebook page, he had a lot of friends and what seemed to be a very tight-knit crew. And according to Avery, he was a total sweetheart. My first impression of Randall was, one, he was just super kind. He was always willing to give you the shirt off his back, whatever you needed. I remember my mom's Jeep had broken down, and I was in the Jeep while my mom was trying to figure out how to fix it on our way home up the mountains. And Randall, this kid, had pulled over to see if he could help my mom, and he helped my mom get my car, the Jeep started. When Randall stopped to help Avery's mom, he actually didn't even recognize them. He was just willing to stop and help a stranger. That was just his nature. Like, he saw somebody in need of help. He would drop everything to help them, even before himself. Even if it was something he needed, he made sure everybody else was taken care of. Randall's kindness was evident at school as well. I'm not very tall now, but I was 4'11 in high school. And I got made fun a lot. And I, I was used to it. And a lot of time, it wouldn't bother me. But Ava recalls one occasion where kids after school were being really mean to her and picking on her about her height. They were picking on me, and to be honest, I can't remember the things they said, but it was in reference to my height. 
And I remember Randall was there, and he just came up and grabbed my hand and basically told him, you can't talk to her like that, and walked me away saying, nobody gets to make fun of you but me. Because <laughs> he teased me. But when he teased me, it was more like a, I don't know, it was like a, it was like a joke. It was kindness. It wasn't like he was being mean to me when he would tease me. Over time, Avery and Randall's friendship grew, with contact between them ebbing and flowing as teenage friendships often do. Sometimes you'd see and talk to your friends all the time. Sometimes one of you would get into a relationship or get an after-school job or sport or something like that. So you wouldn't see each other as often, but then you'd snap back into contact like nothing happened. By 2008, due to some family matters, Avery had moved to Montana and then moved back to Apache Junction. She'd also decided to graduate from high school early. So by this time, she was out of high school and working at her job in Apache Junction. She'd moved out of her parents' house and was living with her best friend. Then came June 20th, which was sort of a regular day for Avery, except it was also her 18th birthday. And since she was scheduled to work a shift that day, she'd done most of her celebrating in the days prior. But she did have plans for cake with her roommate when she got home. But when she arrived, the plans changed. And that's because her roommate had some troubling news to share with her. I came home, and at that time, my home was with my best friend. We lived together, and she knew Randall, too, because we went to the same youth group. She told me that he had been killed. And there's so many thoughts that ran through my mind, like how, why. And I remember just being completely heartbroken. It's just something you wouldn't imagine happening in this small town where everybody knows everybody. Randall had been found at the bottom of a ditch by the side of a road. Who would do this to a guy who was described to be so sweet? And more importantly, why would someone do this to him? To explore what happened and how it happened, we got to go back. In high school, Randall was friends with everyone. Our high school was clicky, but then there were people who were like, Myself, and I feel like Randall was like this, too, where we would hop from group to group. Like, we had ties to everybody. Randall was very much like that, where he was in football, he was in motocross, and youth group. I feel like he was similar to me, where he would just, he didn't have a specific group. He just kind of belonged everywhere. Besides being liked and having tons of friends, he also had a way with the ladies. He was a handsome and charming 17-year-old, so what wasn't to love? And we're going to look at a picture and kind of describe it to you of Randall right now. I'll start it off. He is, to me, how I would describe him is like a hot bro in high school. Like he's wearing a backwards hat. He's in front of this Jack Daniels poster. He kind of has like doing a little muscle pose and he's really, really cute. Yeah, he's got a really handsome face. He looks fun and he looks like a high school kid. Like this is sort of got the youthful sort of um, appearance of like a, a young guy coming into his own. Yeah, exactly. He's he's getting there. He's on the cusp of manhood. Got great eyebrows. He's going to get <laughs> great eyebrows. Because of how nice and sweet he was, that it was just easy for him and he he always seemed to be talking about certain girls in general about how cute they were or whatnot i don't recall him actually dating until we got further into high school and i don't remember anyone specifically except for except for megan rice 16 year old megan rice was one of the most popular girls in school and randall was stoked when they started dating i didn't have a good relationship with her i knew of her maybe just girl's intuition. It was just, she was one of those girls that, you know, you told your brother and your friends, she's not good. Stay away from her. She just had one of those manipulative attitudes and the way she treated guys was like they were expendable. I did know a friend from school that had dated her and it was always on and off until he was finally like, I'm done. We're not doing this anymore. To be honest, she's very pretty. She's a very pretty girl. And I mean, she was very manipulative. I mean, like, it was kind of like any guy she could get wrapped around her finger. She would bounce from guy to guy. So we are looking at a picture of Megan now. Lex, I'm going to let you describe what Megan's looking like. Megan is really adorable and very pretty. Little tiny nose, cute features, big eyes, kind of like brown, coppery colored hair, at least in this photo. She looks like 
a popular girl in high school. I mean, she really does. She's wearing kind of a lot of makeup for her age, but she's got that look. I mean, I probably would have been scared of her in high school. Yes. (laughs) It's quintessential, scary, popular girl. Yes. Mm -hmm. That I would be absolutely terrified to talk to. And all the boys I'm assuming would probably be all over her because she also looks like older. She's got sex appeal and she's a little young to have this kind of sex appeal, but she has it nonetheless. Right. So when Randall got with Megan, the attitude around school was probably that it would be short-lived and Megan would just kind of, you know, date him and then move on. And interestingly, around the same time that Randall began dating Megan, his behavior and attitude about certain things in his life began to shift. And Avery remembers noticing this change within him. I didn't correlate it with Megan at the time. In fact, Avery initially correlated this change in Randall with a new group of friends that he was hanging out with. For instance, we have activities and I would see he just stopped coming. And then but I would see him at school and be like, Hey, we're gonna play dodgeball. You you in tonight? And he would be all excited, like, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick your butt. And then dodgeball at church would happen and Randall wouldn't be there. And you would ask him and he's like, Oh, I something came up. It was just it was like he wanted to be there, maybe he just popped into one of the wrong groups kind of thing. There was an instance where there was vandalism to her bus at night when it was parked at the church. And one of the, my pastor at the time, who's actually my husband's dad now, he wasn't 100% sure that Randall was involved, but it was Randall's friends that were involved in the incident. To Avery, hearing this stuff about Randall was perplexing. What was going on with him? Well, actually, a lot was going on. In addition to having a new girlfriend in Megan Rice and a new group of friends, Randall was also dealing with personal tragedy from within his family. In November of 2007, Randall's 20-year-old sister, Felicia, died from a neurological disease. And given that the family was described as very tight-knit, there's no doubt that this would have taken a serious toll on him as well. Right. So with what was going on with Randall, this loss, the new friends and the new girlfriend— Any one of these things, or some combination of all of them, could explain this change Avery noticed in Randall's behavior. Not to mention, it could also just be normal teenage rebellion. We've all seen it. Boys turn into teenagers who are on the path to adulthood, and personalities and priorities change pretty vastly in high school. And this happens sort of across the board with kids and their personalities. Now, regardless of our theory on this, Randall's relationship with Megan wasn't the stable, healthy partnership Randall was looking for. I never saw them out of school. I would see Megan, like, if I would see her like, our Walmart or whatnot. But, I mean, other than school, I hardly ever saw Megan and Randall together. He never mentioned her by name to me, but he would mention how he would have girl trouble and he just didn't know what to do. And I would, I would tell him, you know, just pray about it, follow your heart, don't do anything you don't want to do. And I know that they hopped on and off because that's just what Megan did with all the boys. So Megan and Randall's relationship did start to take on this on and off archetype. It's one we're all familiar with. And this continued into the summer of 2008, which brings us to the early morning hours of June 20th. And this is where our story takes a really, really unexpected turn. We're shifting gears, so really try to pay attention. It was 3 a.m. on June 20th of 2008 when the sheriff's department received a strange call from the father of Megan Rice, and he was calling to report a terrifying home invasion that had been perpetrated by an armed assailant. So officers soon arrived at the scene. They speak with Megan, her brother, and a friend of her brother's who was also present when this all went down. And Megan seemed super shaken up. And she told them that a man holding a shotgun had busted in the front door and demanded the keys to the truck in the driveway, and this car belonged to Megan's father. Terrified, Megan handed the keys over, and then the robber fled. When asked, the three teens described the assailant as having hair that had been recently dyed black and was wearing a black t-shirt. So as the officers are questioning Megan, they notice something that was sort of odd. Her hair was soaking wet, as if she'd just taken a shower. One of the detectives confused by this asked Megan to explain, at what point did she take a shower? Did she take the shower after the intruder came in, but before she woke up her father? Well, that wouldn't have made sense. And if she had taken it before the intruder came in, there's no reason her hair still would have been wet. Megan started getting tripped up, 
when she was pressed on this. And in that moment, the questioning officer picks up on this fact and that something is just not quite right. Megan is lying or she's holding something back. She continued to be dodgy and evasive. They start asking Megan additional questions about this intruder. They ask if she's perhaps seen him before, if she knew him. She denies it repeatedly, but eventually she breaks and admits the intruder was actually 17-year-old David Paulson. Okay, so who is this David Paulson, you ask? It's a very important name because David Paulson was essentially Megan's other boyfriend. The fact that Megan had another boyfriend should be no real surprise here based on what we've learned about her so far. But what is surprising is that one of Megan's boyfriends broke into her house and stole her father's truck, allegedly at gunpoint. That is a surprise. Okay, so, and we have a pic of David Paulson, and he's a redheaded kid. Uh, How would you guys describe him? He's like a cute kid with red hair. (laughs) That's pretty much it. I mean, he looks like your standard ginger to me. He's got very pale skin. He's got a healthy head of hair, I would say. Um, It's not like bright orange, but it's definitely red. Could be Jared's cousin. I mean... It could be Jared's cousin. I don't see any. I don't see any freckles though. So, right, redhead without freckles. Yeah, and he grew, and it's Apache Junction, which is really close to where Jared grew up too. Oh, maybe they're related. Uh oh. All right. So the police are super confused at this point, to say the least. If this is Megan's boyfriend, why did he just do this? And Megan says she doesn't know, but her best guess was that they had broken up recently and she was seeing other guys. But in the same breath, she was adamant that she really cared about David. She also said that prior to David breaking into her house, she hadn't spoken with him in weeks. So if you're bewildered by all of this, don't worry, because the cops were too. But what do we know about David Paulson? David had gone to the same school as Megan, Randall, and our first degree, Avery. I did not know David Paulson at all. I believe he was a year older than us, which might be why I didn't know him. David Paulson had not always attended Apache Junction High School. He moved to Apache Junction in 2008 after his parents had separated. He was living there with his father and stepmom, and his real mother moved to Utah. So he was a new kid at school, and once he got there, he established himself as a guy you didn't want to mess with. And he did this by getting into fights with other kids whenever he was mildly provoked. Megan found herself attracted to him. As cliche as it may sound, some girls like bad boys. Slowly, Megan and David got to know each other, and lo and behold, the new kid found himself dating one of the prettiest and most popular girls at school. Over time, David became infatuated with Megan, making her his top priority, which understandably worried his parents. They encouraged him to focus on his studies and reminded him that this high school romance shouldn't be life-defining, but David didn't listen. And over time, they realized that David was neglecting his schoolwork and his grades were slipping. And he was totally focused and obsessed with Megan. And it turns out that David's fixation on Megan was rooted in the fear that he would lose her. Because while Megan was his girlfriend, there were guys hovering around her constantly. And Megan, who loved attention, was a flirt. And we've learned would juggle and toy with multiple guys at a time. So this obsession with Megan was really just fear of the inevitable, that Megan would fall for someone else when she grew tired of him. As David's parents tried to snap their son back into having some sort of perspective, things just seemed to get more serious between he and Megan. When they tried to limit David's time with her, he rebelled furiously, to the point where he eventually just decided to leave his dad and stepmom's house and run away, and basically cease contact with his family. And in doing this, David thought he'd get to have more time with Megan, but that's not how things worked out. Because logistically, it was difficult for David and Megan to maintain contact especially because once he left his parents' house, he just stopped going to school altogether. And that just made everything worse. And David is just 17 years old and he had no money. So he resorted to shoplifting to get what he needed, which ultimately led to him being arrested. And once that happened, his parents were notified and David was returned to living with his family because remember, he's not an adult. So through all of this, David and Megan sort of remained together, but things didn't return to normal once David was back. His parents were pissed, and they were going to watch him like a hawk. And almost immediately upon his return, he was subjected to drug testing. David's parents' efforts did not sway David from continuing to see Megan or from using recreational drugs. 
because apparently he decided to take an ecstasy pill that was cut with meth. And when David's test came back positive, his parents were done fucking around and sent him to rehab. For David, the worst part of rehab was being separated from his girlfriend because Megan needed a lot of attention and David knew that. And it was David's stint in rehab which caused the rift between he and Megan that he was so desperate to prevent. And David hoped Megan would wait around for him, but he wasn't convinced that she would. And with David gone, all the other boys at school who had been crushing on Megan were now presented with this magical window of opportunity to make a move. And they did. And Megan was happy to be showered with all of this attention. And based on the reporting, it seems as though she could just take her pick. And who did she zero in on? Randall. And this is how he enters the picture. So she's now essentially involved with both of them. But only Randall is physically present because David remained in rehab. And it's unclear if the guys knew about each other at this point. Okay, so now we know the general backstory for both of these relationships. What we don't know is why David would have held the girl he loves at gunpoint and stolen her father's car. Police were left to wonder, did David snap as a result of his heartbreak or his jealousy? Either way, the cops needed to focus on their task at hand looking for the truck belonged to Megan's father. And since they knew who the assailant was, the most reasonable place to start was at the home of David's father and stepmom. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. 
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Officers were in pursuit of teenager David Paulson, and were thinking, this kid is armed, this kid is dangerous, and this kid is desperate, so they needed to find him quickly. They were on their way to the home of David's father, which, geographically speaking, was in the Tomahawk area of Apache Junction. When police arrived at the Paulson home, they're looking for Megan's dad's truck in the driveway, but that isn't exactly what they find. As they're looking around near the Paulson home, they spot something in the ravine a stone's throw from the residence. They could see what looked like the body of a man lying face down in a drainage ditch. And when they approached, they could see the man was covered in blood. And their minds go to a logical place. This must be David. Between his erratic behavior and the location, the body had to be David's. And something must have happened to him as he was trying to make his way home. Or perhaps he may have even taken his own life. So this was a shocking discovery, and the officers call in backup and wait for the medical examiner to arrive. Meanwhile, the commotion outside drew the Paulson family from their house. David's dad and stepmom are made aware that there was a deceased person on their property. Now, naturally, they're getting very, very upset, thinking that this could somehow be David. Remember, David was supposed to be in rehab, but he had escaped. So David's family had no idea where he was, and they hadn't seen him recently. So there's a ton of confusion all around. Right, and the medical examiner arrives on the scene. And in observing the deceased, they see a spade-shaped tattoo on his forearm. When they ask David's parents about this, they say the last time they saw their son, he had no such tattoo. So another thing to note here is that Megan said David had dyed his red hair black. And this deceased person had on the ground had dark hair. So this further added confusion to making a positive ID on this body, at least visually speaking, at this point. And the ME turned the body around and searched through the pockets, and they found a wallet. Inside, they found an ID, and the name, Randall Mercier. This was not the body of David Paulson. This was Randall, and he had suffered more than 22 stab wounds. The confusion and horror was palpable. The cops had a lot to figure out at this point. They didn't know who Randall was and how he was connected to this case, and they didn't know why his body was on the Paulson's property. Okay, shifting focus again. As all of this is happening, Randall had been missing, and his friends noticed. They were calling each other, trying to figure out where he was. And with the discovery of Randall, police were slowly putting together the pieces as the night faded away and the light of day crept over Apache Junction. Where it happened... I actually drove by on my way home from work and I remember seeing cop cars and I mean, I didn't see anything. I just remember seeing cop cars and not thinking anything of it. Whereas now knowing what happened, it's just. The police were still locked in on their mission of trying to find David Paulson. And as news of the tragic events started to spread, Officers learned from David's grandparents that they had actually taken David to the airport that morning to catch a flight to Utah to visit his mother. And this trip had actually been planned in advance. So this information put two things in motion simultaneously. The first thing, David would need to be located in Utah by federal authorities. And the second thing, if David had showed up at his grandparents' house, then more than likely, the truck belonging to Megan Rice's father would have to be near the home somewhere within walking distance. As law enforcement is working to find David, find the truck, and figure out who killed Randall, a call came in which revealed a bombshell. The call to the police came from the father of Megan's brother's friend. And remember how this friend was there when the home invasion occurred at the Rice home and the truck was stolen? Well, when this friend arrived home after the police came and took all of their statements at Megan's house, he confessed to his father that the whole story about David breaking in with a shotgun and stealing the truck 
that was all a lie. A lie that Megan had asked them to corroborate and go along with. And beyond that, this friend had been at the house all night and admitted that earlier that night he'd seen Megan leave the house with the truck. And when she returned, she didn't have the truck with her. And the reason Megan took a shower that night, she was covered in blood. So if David Paulson had never really broken into Megan's house, what really happened? What was going on here? The police are starting to put the obvious together. Randall, who was dating Megan, was found having suffered many sharp force injuries on the property of David Paulson. And now we have Megan arriving home, covered in blood, and lying about a home invasion perpetrated by her other boyfriend. Did Megan kill Randall? Did David kill Randall? Did they kill Randall together? Was Megan's story of the robbery an attempt to pin it all on David? Or is this just one piece of a bigger plan that no one was aware of yet? Lots of questions indeed. Okay, so now armed with this information, the police return to confront Megan. And listen to this. When they go back to Megan's house to talk to her again, when she's walking around the house, they see that she's walking kind of funny, almost like there's something inside of her shoes. Pretty weird, but I guess this case can only get weirder based on what's happened so far. But anyway, the police ask Megan to take off her shoes, and she does. And inside of her shoes was an iPod and a pair of brass knuckles. Now, when asked about these items, she tells the police that the iPod belonged to Randall. And I just want to clear up what she's doing here. I think when the police came back, she expected them to search the house. And she's thinking, they're not going to ask me to take off my shoes. I'll just hide the evidence in my shoes. And I'll hide this incriminating evidence. I am a very smart criminal. They'll never catch on to this. Meanwhile, the police do search the home, which is probably what she was trying to avoid, having them find this stuff. And they also find a bloodied pair of denim shorts and a gray tank top that was also covered in blood. So with these discoveries, obviously, Megan is taken to the police department because this is looking really bad for her. And it's at this point that Megan reveals the love triangle between her, David, and Randall. And she doesn't stop there. She starts to spill the whole story. And this is what she said. She said that on the night that Randall was murdered, both of the guys had reached out to Megan to try to make plans with her. And during her conversation with David, he told her about his plans to go to Utah the next day and that he was considering staying there permanently and then living with his mom. And he expressed that he was tired of Megan jerking him around and he just wanted to start over. And then as Megan was suddenly faced with this very real possibility of actually losing David, she starts to panic. We asked Avery if she knew whether Randall and Megan were officially together at this time or if they'd already broken up. From what I understand, they were already broken up. It was just this love triangle, and I guess, I don't know, she thought he wouldn't leave her alone. And knowing Randall, if she really didn't want Randall around, all she would have to say is, Randall, we're done. And yes, Randall might be heartbroken because at the time he loved her, but I mean, he's not gonna bug her. He's not, that's not who Randall is. He would have left her alone. So now, even though Megan was toying with Randall as she decided she really wants to be with David now, she suddenly was of the mindset that she would do anything to keep David from leaving. So her plan to compel David to stay was to try to make him jealous and use Randall as a pawn. So when David asked to see Megan on his last night, she says no. And she says she's hanging out with Randall instead. But according to Megan, her plan backfired because David went from jealous to seething anger. Right. And David, at this point, started threatening to kill Randall. And slowly, his angry rants transformed into an actionable plan. And not only that, according to Megan, David was also going to demand that she participate in this. Megan then spouted off this bullshit story and told the police that she felt scared for her life which is why she ultimately folded and agreed to do this with David. Megan then walked the police through what happened next. She left her house and she took her father's work truck without asking. She picked up David around the corner from his grandparents' house. And when he got in the car, he had two blankets and a knife with him. David hid in the back seat and covered himself with a blanket so he wouldn't be seen. 
Megan then picked up Randall under the pretense that they were going to one of her friend's houses to drink. And as Randall sat in the front seat, he had no idea that David was hiding right behind him. And once in the truck with Megan, Randall expressed interest in continuing their relationship. And this is literally while she was setting up a trap to have him killed. The whole thing, when you think about it, is so heartbreaking and so disgusting. He was such a nice guy. Why why would this be a solution ever for any teenage heartbreak? And I mean, I know teenagers don't think clearly, but I mean, I mean, teenagers are stupid in many ways. But how does this lead to the result? At one point as they're driving, Megan passes the Paulson house and she says, there's David's house, which unbeknownst to Randall was the code word that Megan and David had agreed upon. Now, once he hears that, this prompts David to start stabbing Randall from the back seat. Despite Randall being stabbed more than 22 times, he was able to get out of the truck and was able to stumble out into the darkness trying to escape. Then these two psychopaths drove away, leaving this poor, helpless guy outside alone, bleeding, and scared. The part that really got to me when I found out how he fought, he tried to get out of the car, and he got out of the car and ran away to a, to basically a ditch area where he eventually died. And that was the scene I was driving by on my way home. And to know that Randall was there and what happened, it was just it was surreal that this had happened to my friend. And how could this happen to this guy? Now, after all of this went down, Megan and David didn't actually have a plan when it comes to covering things up. So Megan's decision to tell the police that David, via armed robbery, stole the truck is a very hard choice to understand. And our guess is that she immediately decided to turn on David and she was going to try to ensure that he took the fall for all of this. It kind of tracks with her behavior so far, but who knows? After all, though, isn't David extremely foolish to think that a girl who would agree to help him kill one of her boyfriends wouldn't turn on him in a second? What did you expect, dude? I mean, this is the kind of person who agreed to kill an innocent guy with you. (laughs) She's not going to suddenly be the picture of moral perfection. And as Megan is telling the story, she is working really hard to try to distance herself from being accountable for the crime as much as possible. And despite that, the police arrest her for murder. Additional searches of the Rice home were made, and Megan's phone and computer were also taken in for processing. Meanwhile, U.S. Marshals are working to locate David in Utah, and law enforcement in Apache Junction were still trying to locate Megan's father's truck. And eventually they do. They found it at a convenience store close to the home of David's grandparents. And when crime scene techs opened the vehicle, there was blood everywhere. There was blood on the roof on the doors, the steering wheel, everywhere. Meanwhile, the examination of Megan's phone and computer revealed that she really was very much playing both David and Randall and trying to antagonize them each with one another. And she seemed to be enjoying upsetting both of them. But beyond that, the police observed that Megan and David had actually exchanged messages about killing Randall for some time, which completely undermines the story Megan told them. I had a feeling... Megan had something to do with it. I had no idea she was the mastermind of it. I had no idea that she would have been the one with the planning. The one thought was maybe Megan did it. I thought Megan maybe stabbed him. I didn't think Megan was the mastermind manipulator between these two boys. The fact that they plotted this thing, like, and not one of them said, well, okay, you know, I understand you're mad and you wish he was dead and whatever, but you don't stop and say, we're not really going to do this. Like, why wouldn't you stop and say, we're not going to do this? It's just, that's what boggles my mind is that not one of them had the, the thought, okay, you know, I'm mad. We're not really going to do this. Eventually, David was recovered from Utah and extradited back to the Apache Junction to face charges for the first degree murder of Randall. And David immediately pleaded not guilty, and he never uttered a word to law enforcement when he was questioned. And this was completely opposite from Megan, who spilled everything to the cops. 
And originally, Megan was looked at as a co-conspirator in this case, and she was slated to face first-degree murder charges just like David. But it seems that her willingness to talk scored her some points. The state saw an opportunity and offered her a deal. Megan would only serve 12 years if she agreed to plead guilty and testify against David. When the trial commenced, there was a lot of overwhelming evidence against David, not to mention Megan's testimony. But David's lawyer came up with a shocking defense. What they were claiming is that on the night of Randall's murder, David had actually been the intended victim, targeted by Megan and Randall, and that he had killed Randall in self-defense. Now we know this is ridiculous based on all the evidence, and all the evidence proved the opposite to be true. But as with all defense teams, they have to come up with something, and this is what they came up with. And remember the text messages between Megan and David discussing the pre-planning? Yeah, there's also no other way to explain that. That infuriated me. He tried to say that he was the one in the seat and Randall was the guy in the back covered in a blanket. And Randall tried to stab David. And I was dating my husband at the time. And I remember flying into a fury about it. I, I couldn't believe that he had the gall to say that about Randall. Because Randall wouldn't do anything like that. And it was just the gumption and gall that he had to say about Randall's character after he's gone, and he's not there to defend himself. Prosecutors hammered home the fact that Randall's murder was motivated by jealousy. And it's a theory the jury bought, because David was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And Megan, she was carted off to prison to begin serving her 12-year sentence. She was scheduled to be released in December of 2020. In prison, Megan had accumulated 25 violations as of October 2019, including breaking prison rules, tattooing, piercing, and possessing contraband, among other things. And at one point, she posted this message to a prison pen pal's website, meetaninmate.com. It read, I'm looking for a pen pal to help pass the time and keep me in touch with what is going on in the world. I'm looking for someone young, active, someone with a job, and someone who would like to make a difference in the world and help me be motivated to do something with my life away from prison. I got involved with the wrong guy at a young age, and I am paying the price. Now I want to find the right guy. Ooh, that's chilling. (laughs) Jesus, dude. Also, like, this was your idea, lady. I know. Well, it's, like, still taking no blame. Also, like, don't find the right guy. The right guy is too good for you. Like, you deserve trash. Yeah, there is no right guy. Your right guy is in prison right now for murder. Right. If you look at her crime sheet in prison, it's it's lengthy. And I mean, she in her mug shots, she's smiling. She's always trying to look good. In 2018, Ranker.com took a bunch of images from meetaninmate.com, and they actually ran a poll to see who was the hottest women currently in prison. And who came out on top? You guessed it, Megan. She got 16,000 upvotes. I really dislike that. I really think it's so tacky and shitty. Like, this is a person who stole someone's life. You shouldn't be applauding their appearance and like... No, Ranker, what are you doing? Yeah, do better. Do better, Ranker, yeah. Here's the thing, though. Megan Rice is now actually out of prison, having been released on December 21st, 2020, just as planned. Despite all those infractions on her record, it didn't seem to hinder her release. And now... You're all aware that she is free and walking among you. It's unfair, and it scares me because, I mean, just reading what she's done in prison, I don't think she's changed. I don't think she's a different person. I think she thinks she got away with murder. I mean, just her smug grins and mug shots. I mean, it's just unreal, unfair. And I know that people looked at them as they were kids during this whole trial, and they, you know... They reacted on their punishment based on them being children. But I mean, yes, they were children, but do you see what they did to this other child? Randall doesn't get to get paroled. He doesn't get to come back. He doesn't get to live his life. Why should they? And yes, I get it. They're teenagers, but so is Randall. I mean, they did an adult crime. I think they should pay the adult, you know, payment. Avery still thinks about Randall. Oh, he was just such a a nice guy. I mean, 
he had one of those magnetic smiles and just his kindness, it drew people to him. And it's no doubt that Megan contributed to destroying the lives of these two young men. It just shows you about teenage love at the time. The kind of person she is, it just shows by how she got these two guys to basically for her. And they did it. I mean, David did it for her. No questions asked. And then when the time came, he was more than willing to throw her under the bus. Very like the spell wore off or something. I do consider the decision she made evil. In crimes like this, the people who murdered or the, the perpetrator are always the ones that are remembered. And I don't want that for Randall. I want him to be remembered because Megan and David are not worth remembering. Well, huge thank you to Avery for being our first degree guest this week. Again, if you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Johnson at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and then sometimes not some true crime and then stick around tomorrow right in our feed. We're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. Keep your friends close. But not that close (laughs) happy girls night in day girls night in white chocolate day shout out to jared monaco for scoring and creating original music for the first degree producing by caitlin cleveland producing additional writing by taylor rogers and producing by alan santiago for podcast one sources for this episode are my crime library ranker east valley tribune and as always our first three guest is always our largest source I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.